Hello, Georges Collinet here. Welcome to Season 2 of the Afropop Close-Up Podcast. In this first episode of the season, producer Ian Koss brings us a story of music, money, and the law. It takes place in Haiti and features one of the country's top music producers, a man known as Power Surge. I grew up not too far from Chanmus, and Chanmus is where they have the national carnivals every year. And I remember growing up, I used to hear the floats going by from my house. The way it's set up, it's like a route. And along that route, you have multiple trucks loaded with speakers. And on each truck is a popular band. And I'm not gonna forget, there was one year, Sweet Mickey, our former Haitian president, he would wait until it's five or six in the morning for his float to go by. So he would make everyone stay on Shunmus and wait for him to come. And one year as he was coming, there was a shootout and we had to run for our lives. I believe I was around eight or nine years old and I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was good times. So Carnival is kind of like a love story for me. And that's how I really got into production, period. Like my first love was for Carnival. This is Serge Tournier, also known as Power Serge. I'm a music producer, composer, author. And as a kid, Tournier says he never thought he'd be the one to write the songs that blasted out of those passing trucks. But just last year, he produced half a dozen Carnival songs working with artists like Frappla, Trouble Boy, and even Wyclef Jean, probably the most internationally recognized artist of Haitian origin. But despite that success... Well, first of all, a musician is not even recognized as a real job here in Haiti. You're just nothing, really, in, in the eye of the law. Now, in my eyes, Power Surge looks the part of a big shot record producer. The first time I meet him in Port-au-Prince, He's wearing the same shade of maroon from the collar of his polo down to the laces on his sneakers, and his beard is sculpted to a sharp edge. He says he wants to show me something near the neighborhood where he grew up. So he climbed into his car, silver Mercedes SUV. It looks real good from the outside. Inside, turns out there's car trouble. The AC is broken, which in Port-au-Prince in August is bad news. Tournier pulls over to mechanic shop. The air coming out of the vents is now slightly cooler, but AC or not, we have places to go. Okay, Pam. You too. I'm gonna go show you something. We're driving through that neighborhood where Tournier grew up, where the carnival trucks still pass by every year. This area right here is called Post-Marchon. As a sign of love and respect, they did a mural for me. There aren't many working stoplights in this part of Port-au-Prince, and the traffic is thick as the midday heat. Eventually, we break through and turn on a side street, lukewarm air still blasting from the dashboard, and then we're there. The mural covers the side of a two-story building. It shows a group of young hip-hop artists posing in a line. Above them, their producer, Power Surge, frames the whole scene, his two hands pointing straight out from the wall. 
confident. Is this the same guy who just told me he's ready to quit the music business because he can't make a living at it? Um, music is probably 10% of my income. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, you were you were just working with Wyclef John not long ago, and you can Wy- barely make 10% of your income in Wyclef, music. Wyclef paid me. Let's get that on, <laughs> on the record. <laughs> so I, mean, a- I just mean like that as an indicator of your success. I mean, right. the, you're a serious producer in the industry, and yet it's that hard. Absolutely. absolutely. Every, it's so sad when I meet an upcoming producer, and he's like so excited and so full of life and joie de vivre, and he wants to make it, and he's talking to me as somebody who made it. And I'm just like, dude, I'm actually on my way out. Like, there's nothing. There's literally nothing in this industry that that's really keeping me from, you know, not quitting. Other than the passion. This is that song Power Surge produced last year for Wyclef John. So here he is, at the top of his field in Haiti, and yet at the same time on the verge of quitting the music business altogether. Thinking of moving to Florida, maybe even going back to school. And to understand why, we have to talk about copyright. All right, well, first we have to stop this song. And that's because here in the United States, where we're producing this podcast, a song by Wyclef Jean is protected by copyright. Meaning, we can't really play it without permission. Copyright is really interesting because it goes back to censorship, actually. Alex Safe Cummings is going to help us sort this out. Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University. I focus on the history of intellectual property. Now, Cummings is an expert on U.S. copyright law. So we're going to use a bit of that history to put Haiti's story in perspective. As you were saying, the first copyright laws, which were written in England in the 1600s, were not about protecting artists at all. They were literally about who had the right to make copies, which at that time was the Printer's Guild. Then later it evolved into something that was um, actually owned by the artist or writer. But in the beginning, it was actually meant to control speech. Fast forward... The first two independent nations in the Americas are the United States in 1776 and Haiti in 1804. And at that time, just like Cummings said, copyright is generally understood as the right of creators, like artists and inventors, to control their own work. In America, copyright's baked into the Constitution. It actually very specifically says that, you know, authors and inventors should have the right to benefit from their works. But... It only covers books, maps, and charts. Now, the first Haitian constitution of 1804 makes no mention of copyright. There are a few lines about protecting commerce and agriculture, but nothing on copyright specifically. And this contrast between the two countries has only become more stark over time. In 1832, the U.S. Congress expanded copyright law to cover sheet music so that composers could control and profit from the scores for their work. They couldn't own the sound itself, just the notes on the page. And that worked pretty well until the end of the century when recording technology came along. And with a gramophone, consumers didn't necessarily need sheet music to hear their favorite songs at home. They just needed the record. So it's very interesting. Um, John Philip Sousa 
Victor Herbert, all these big composers come to Congress in 1905, 1906, and they're like, hey guys, people are going out there, they're making wax cylinders, they're making discs, they're making money off of our music, but we're not getting paid for it. And there's actually this really funny moment where uh, John Philip Sousa, who's the famous like band leader, he's testifying before Congress, and the congressman asks him, so you could compose better for more money? And he's like, yes, I could. I could compose better for more money. Congress agreed. And so, beginning in 1909, if an artist wanted to record a song that somebody else wrote, they would have to pay a fee to license it. So... When Power Surge or someone else talks about licensing... Licensing. Licensing. This is what he's talking about. But the other issue with recording technology is that music was suddenly playing everywhere. In bars, hotels, on the street. And naturally, musicians wanted to get paid for that too. So they joined forces to form the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, or ASCAP. And in 1917, ASCAP went to court over this song. Here's how it happened. You've got restaurants and bars and retail establishments that are playing music. So you come in, you have dinner, there's music playing. And the composers say, hey, you guys are playing your music at your restaurant or bar and that's, you know, an attraction for people to come there and eat. You're making money off of us. You should pay us. A single case between composer Victor Herbert and an upscale Manhattan restaurant called Shanley's went all the way to the Supreme Court. Basically, the court rules in favor of the composers. This is why every single bar and every single restaurant in America has a little ASCAP sticker on the front of it, because if you're going to use music to make money and to attract customers, then you need to pay us. Herbert V. Shanley established a powerful legal precedent that all businesses who benefit from the use of recorded music should, in principle, pay for that music. In the 1930s, that legal logic is applied to radio, meaning all radio stations in the U.S. also had to pay either ASCAP or another performance rights organization for the music they played on their airwaves. Then, with all this money coming in from radio stations and restaurants, ASCAP could turn around and pay out money to individual musicians. We call those payments royalties which we'll also be hearing about from Power Surge. Royalties. Royalties. So now we've got licensing, royalties, ASCAP, copyright. I realize this is getting complicated. So I went to someone who works in the business for some professional advice. Uh, my name is Melissa Bernier. I'm an entertainment attorney, and I work mostly in the Haitian music industry. And when she's advising clients here in the U.S., Bernier breaks the whole complicated process down into two steps. You have the obtaining of the rights, and then you have the enforcement of the rights. So if I created a song, I would fill out an application with the U.S. Copyright Office and send them a copy of the song, and they would send me back a certificate that says I'm the valid owner of this song. That's step one, but... Well, the Copyright Bureau itself, at least like in the United States, it's not an enforcement agency. It's really kind of like a bank where you keep copyrighted material. So once it's in the bank, how do you actually make money from that song 
and keep other people from making money from it. Now, what I would do with that song is I would take it if I'm a registered with ASCAP, I would deposit it with ASCAP, and ASCAP will monitor when it's being played, who's playing it, how much I need to get, and then I would get paid royalties that way. And because ASCAP has relationships with other rights organizations in almost every country on Earth, whenever or wherever your song gets played, you should get paid. But I said almost. Have you ever been to improv? (laughs) This brings us back to Haiti and the story of Power Surge. You see... Structurally, if we're thinking like how a music industry is structured in in other countries, and Haiti is a, a little different. For most of its history, Haiti has had no copyright office and no performance rights organization. In fact, when you look at ASCAP's website, you can see they list a partnering organization for every country in the Caribbean. They have partners in Jamaica, the Dominican Republic, Grenada, everywhere except for Haiti and Cuba. The country is like a black hole on the map of intellectual property. No copyrights or payments go in, no copyrights or payments come out. I almost want to say the copyright is almost a non-existent issue in Haiti. I don't want to say non-existent because people know that it exists. But as far as the the real implications of them, I haven't seen any of that. When I first arrived in Port-au-Prince, I could see what she was talking about. Just step out on the street and you hear music everywhere. It pumps out of passing cars, from stereo components wired together on the sidewalk. Mostly, those stereos are tuned to one of the city's many radio stations. The catch is that radio stations in Haiti don't have to pay for a license to play music. Neither do restaurants or bars, so there's no money for musicians there. The same goes for selling albums. Small music stalls pop up on the sidewalk each day with the morning traffic, and for about 75 cents, they'll sell you a cheap burn CD of the latest hits. I spoke with one young vendor who introduced himself only as Weekinson, and he was perfectly clear about what he was selling. He said pirate, pirated CDs, copies, meaning no money goes to the artist. Half that money he keeps for himself, half he pays to a distributor downtown. I asked if the police ever give him trouble. Nope, no trouble. I say something about how this must just be normal business in Haiti. But he corrects me. No, it's not normal to him. It's just accepted. It's been this way since the first 78 RPM records were pressed in Haiti in 1937. Recorded music is basically up for grabs. Copy it, perform it, play it on the radio, use it for an ad. Anything goes. The fact is, Haiti's history has been a long struggle for survival and independence. From slavery, from invasions, from dictators, from natural disasters. And protecting the rights of musicians has simply never been a priority. Which raises the question, how do musicians make money? Here in Haiti, the way people make money with music is that there's different channels. The number one, of course, is performance. Again, this is Serge Tournier, a.k.a. Power Surge. The other source of revenue in the Haitian music industry is sponsorship. 
as popular as you get, the major companies want to associate their brands with you. So they give you money for your project or they give you money to use your image. But as a producer, Tournier is not usually the one up on stage performing. He may have his own mural, but his face is not the one you see on billboards all over town, advertising rum and cell phones. He's the guy in the studio, writing the songs and making the beats, working behind the scenes. You could hear one of his songs on the radio and not even know that Power Surge had anything to do with it, unless you notice that little audio tag that he slips in at the top, like this. Here it is again. You see what I mean? That tag is about as close as Tournier can get to an effective copyright in Haiti. Something that says, I made this. But it doesn't have much legal standing. Which is why Tournier was very excited to learn that the law in Haiti was finally going to change. The BHDA, or in English, the BHDA, is the Haitian Bureau of Authors' Rights. It is the nation's very first copyright office, and it was established in 2005. Here's Emmeline Prophet, the director of the BHDA, speaking in a press conference, literally explaining how copyright works and why musicians should care about it. She's saying that the BHDA will protect their work, and collect money from those who use that work. Composers in the United States won that right exactly 100 years ago, in the case of Herbert V. Shanley. Composers in Haiti, like Power Surge, have never enjoyed that right, even on paper, until now. The question, of course, is whether those paper laws will turn into actual paper money. And as a young producer, still in college actually, Tournier was part of an effort to do just that. Well, as I was um, in Florida working on my degree, I was also working with some artists in Haiti, one of them which is Jay Perry. This was just a few years after the Copyright Office was created in Haiti in 2005. And it looked like things were really about to change in the music business. And for an unlikely reason. A powerful earthquake causes widespread damage and panic in Port-au-Prince. The 7.0 quake was centered roughly 10 miles from the capital. Along with death and devastation, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti brought a wave of international attention and political change. That year, a pop singer known as Sweet Mickey, one of the very artists that Serge Tournier used to follow around in the carnival parades as a kid, he was elected president of Haiti. In politics, he went by the name Michel Martelly, but he was still a musician at heart. And who better to enforce copyright law? Que le peuple haïtien en soit fier. It seemed like the stars were aligning for true copyright reform in Haiti. That's why I came back, because I didn't want to stay in the States and work with another label that I didn't really know. And instead, I decided to come back to Haiti and work with the label that was home in Haiti. 
Others felt the change coming too. Here's the attorney, Melissa Bernier, again. Yeah, definitely. I thought that there would be a large sort of intellectual property push, and I think that a lot of other musicians sort of had the same hope. But of course, we all felt it because, of course, our president was a musician. Who's going to benefit more from all of it? He is, because the guy has, I don't know, 15, 20 albums, so every time his music would play, he would get returns. This is Carl Frederick Berman. He's the owner of Bowley Records, the label that Power Surge was working with in Haiti. Of course, that was in at the time where we felt that things were going to come to a point where we did have collection in Haiti. He's talking about royalty collection, meaning that radio stations would actually start paying to play music. And cell phone companies would start paying to use songs in their commercials, all guaranteed by law. This possibility even drew the interest of major international record labels, including Warner Music. It was in 2011. It was the year after Earthquake. And we met with the president of the whole Warner Group. We had Warner Israel, Warner Latin America, Warner France. Everyone was at that meeting. And they proposed a licensing deal to make Bali Records a partner to become Warner Music Haiti. At the time, Turnier was brimming with optimism. In a 2012 interview for his college paper, he said, quote, We're going to be the first people doing publishing and licensing in Haiti. That's huge. That is big. It's going to change lives. It's going to change kids' lives, artists' lives. Now in Haiti, an artist will not die poor. End quote. Fittingly, that first song he produced with Jay Perry for Bowley Records was called Décolle, which means take off. But the whole deal depended on copyright enforcement. Yeah, so we got that in the bag. It was ready to be signed. The only thing that happened is that Haiti didn't have the laws to enforce licensing. Remember what Melissa Bernier said about copyright. It's a two-step process. Just obtaining rights is meaningless unless there is someone to enforce them. Bottom line is we couldn't do anything because there's no laws to protect um, intellectual property here in Haiti. Michel Martelly, the pop star president, left office in 2016 in the midst of a political crisis. No further copyright reforms were ever accomplished, and to my knowledge, no royalties have ever been paid out to an artist in Haiti. But what about the Beage des A, Haiti's new copyright office that's supposed to be protecting artists? It is... whatever, man. I don't want to go into it. It's a joke to me. To me, Beage des A is a joke. How they say in Haiti, une belle fleur sans odeur. I think it's French. Beautiful flower with no smell, with no odor, with no, nothing inside of it. My calls to the Beage des A were not answered. I visited in person, but was told that none of the staff were available to speak with me. Several months after first meeting Power Surge and driving around Port-au-Prince with no air conditioning, I called him for an update. Hey, how are you, man? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm great. So you're back in Florida, right? You settled in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm back in Florida. You know, but it, you know, it'll take a little, a little adjusting. And you're you're keeping the, the producing going from there. Still doing it, but you know, there's there's no real activities lately. It's up in the air right now. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to completely give up on music, 
But at the end of the day, I have, you know, responsibilities. And so I need to do something that's going to be, you know, sustainable. I ask him a few questions about copyright reforms, royalties, licensing, but the conversation feels kind of stiff. I think he's tired of the subject after all these years of talk with no results. I gave up, Ian. I'm done. I'm so tired. I feel like I've wasted all my life in this industry for no reason. But you do have a hell of a lot of good music to show for it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. But that's that's pretty much all I have to show for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> for Tournier, copyright is obviously about more than money. It's also about recognition, that there's value in his work, and that value should be protected, both in Haiti and the world at large. But in all my conversations with Tournier, the big unanswered question for me was the what if. I mean, what if U.S.-style copyright law were suddenly enforced in Haiti? What if the police did sweep the streets, confiscating pirated CDs, and restaurants and radio stations did have to pay for the music they played? The musician in me wants these things to happen because I believe musicians have a right to benefit from their work. But the skeptic in me also has to wonder, who would it actually benefit? Who would it hurt? Would it even work? We'll start with entertainment lawyer Melissa Bernier. I asked her what it would look like if copyright law were actually enforced in Haiti. I think in the beginning there'd be a lot of resistance (laughs) and kind of chaos because as it stands right now, it's like a weird fit. And who do you think would benefit most from copyright in Haiti? I guess part of me wonders if it would benefit the sort of top tier of Haitian artists. If you're thinking about things like licensing and that it might kind of make it harder to get into the industry. Yeah, that's definitely a real concern because it's hard enough for newer artists to sort of break into the industry. And a lot of how new artists break into the industry is through covering other people's songs. So if there is this sort of licensing element that becomes introduced into the industry, it is going to sort of cripple the newer artists to kind of make their way up. So that's one of the real concerns in implementing some sort of copyright enforcement structure in Haiti. What about royalties from radio play? Even, I mean, like in the U.S., bars and restaurants Mm -hmm. pay money to ASCAP to play music in public. Is that what you would like to see in Haiti? Does that seem realistic? Would I love to see it? Absolutely. Would artists love to see it? I am almost positive they would. But the enforcement of that and the realistic implications of it, it's like, yeah, (laughs) talk about a weird fit. (laughs) And to be clear, the concerns that Bernier raises are also issues here in the U.S., Royalty collection is far from perfect, and licensing requirements can limit creativity by new artists. Now, when I brought these same concerns to Alex Safe Cummings, the historian of copyright law, he gave me an entirely different kind of skepticism. Remember that idea he started with, that copyright began as a means for powerful groups like guilds and governments to control the sharing of culture. Well, in a way, that remains true. There's a certain romantic idea of copyright, like it's the individual genius who creates something unique and original. And we tend to think of it that way, but, you know, most copyrights are controlled by, you know, massive corporations um, who have their own agendas. And as he explained, that corporate agenda is a big part of the reason why we see these copyright reforms happening in Haiti and in much of the developing world. 
So what does a mega corporation in the U.S. care about all this stuff? Well, it has to do with trade. You see, in the 1970s... There's this anxiety over industrialization or really deindustrialization that, well, we don't make shit anymore. Like, we don't make trucks, so let's try to focus on what we can do which is pharmaceuticals, movies, music. That's the argument for very strong copyright is that we're America, we make Disney. That's what we do. In the 1980s and 90s, this argument is translated into foreign policy. There are a series of trade deals made at this time. And most important for this story is one called TRIPS, the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. It went into effect in 1995 and basically said, If you want to be part of the World Trade Organization, you have to enforce copyrights. Disney's copyrights, Sony's copyrights, everybody's copyrights. So TRIPS set a 10-year deadline for compliance. And lo and behold, Haiti created its copyright office exactly 10 years later, in 2005. This is where the story gets even more complicated. Because in all my conversations with Power Surge and other artists, it was obvious that there was a genuine hunger for copyright law in Haiti. But at the same time, you kind of have to wonder whose rights this system is designed to protect. I guess what I would say is that like the U.S. position is not at all concerned about the rights of those people. It's just about the rights of Sony and Disney to make as much money as they can. So the kind of question that those musicians and artists in Haiti have, that's a very legitimate argument. Yes, they should be protected. Absolutely. But it's not necessarily what the U.S. is like fighting for or supporting. You know what I mean? In fact, one of the critiques of the TRIPS agreement is that it amounts to a massive redistribution of wealth from poor countries to wealthy countries. Because ultimately, who has the most to gain from copyright law? It's the Sonys and the Disneys of the world. If Haitian radio stations actually paid for all the music they play, a lot of that money would go straight out of Haiti and into the pockets of the major labels and the big-name artists. After all, Justin Bieber and Beyoncé get airplay there, too. And that's the other side of copyright in Haiti. It can give, and it can take away, too. Turnier gets that. He knows copyright is complicated. It's messy. It's political. And maybe that's why he was ready to walk away from that fight. But a few months after that last phone conversation, things were looking up. A song that Power Surge produced was just featured in the soundtrack to Cars 3, the new Disney Pixar film. And Disney will definitely be paying to license that song. It shows how Surge is in many ways one of the fortunate few in the Haitian music business. Those who have managed to get some of their music out to international audiences through film or radio. And out there, music can actually make money through royalties and licensing. But still, when carnival season rolls around again, he's back in the studio, making songs for his audience back in Haiti. For the people who painted that mural in his hometown, even if there isn't much money in it. Because at the end of the day, not only, it's not just about the money, you know, it's about the music too. The title of his carnival track this year is Bam Fos, meaning give me the strength. I can't shy away from music, man. Music is, you know, music is the answer. Problem and the answer. The gift and the curse of music. <laughs> Go 
This Afropop close-up was produced in collaboration with the podcast Life of the Law and supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But to keep the series going, we need your support. So if you like stories like this and you want to hear more, visit afropop.org and make a donation. Every dollar counts. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Ian Koss. Papa, I'm a sabella, be moving. Oh, I'm a sabella, be coming.